Federal Drive is presented by GEHA, Government Employees Health Association, proudly providing health and dental benefits to federal employees and their families. Visit GEHA.com. The IRS says it's putting billions of dollars of multi-year modernization funds to good use. Top of the list is rebuilding its workforce and updating legacy IT systems to improve service to taxpayers. But it's also dealing with lawmakers who successfully cut IRS funding in the Inflation Reduction Act earlier this year and are pushing for further cuts. For an update on where the IRS stands on hiring and some long-overdue tech upgrades, Federal News Network's Jory Heckman spoke with the IRS Commissioner, Danny Warfel. I think I start with how are the operations going? And are we answering the phones? Are we meeting people effectively in our walk-in centers? And right now, the answer to that question is yes. And we have had significant success in hiring the customer service part of our workforce that was understaffed for years that predated the Inflation Reduction Act. So the first five or 6,000 hires under the Inflation Reduction Act immediately got deployed into our call center and were able to turn our call response performance around dramatically from a 20% probability of getting through to the IRS to a near 90% probability from a 30-minute wait time on average to under a three-minute wait time on average. Um, So I try to focus when I think about hiring, not like how many employees are we going to hire, but are we going to achieve the mission? And so from a customer service standpoint, I look back on what we've done. We have to keep making sure that we're maintaining the right size. But so far, the impact has been positive. Now we're really focused on making sure we have the right number of enforcement personnel We have a remit and ambition to make sure that we are identifying the increasing number of wealthy filers, that's individuals, large corporations, complex partnerships that are evading their tax responsibility. And we need to collect from them what is owed. And uh, there are more issues of tax evasion than we have people right now to identify and track. So we have to build Uh, that part of our workforce. And we released uh, job announcements across the summer. And then I think we've completed our job announcement for the most part, all of our major job announcements earlier this fall. And it's been a very busy fall, Uh, recruiting events, hiring events, interviews. We've started to bring people on, but I would expect hiring activity on the enforcement side to ramp up as we enter into 2024. Obviously, today's theme is about risk management, and I just wanted to ask you about one big risk that I guess is ultimately out of the IRS's hands. It's Congress and the shrinking Inflation Reduction Act funds. You know, we went from 80 to 60, roughly, and you know they're they're contemplating a 14 billion dollar cut from there. Recognizing that it is a, a shifting number, uh, what can you do to you know win over lawmakers, show them that the IRS is making a good return on investment, and ultimately make sure you guys have the funds to do everything that you want to do? I think there's two things we need to do. One is develop, as we have, an agenda that is unassailable and shouldn't be objectionable. And then we have to deliver quickly on that agenda to demonstrate that we can spend the money wisely. And that agenda really has three things. One is uh, you should be easily able to reach the IRS when you need the IRS. Two is we should be able to identify the growing number of wealthy individuals and large corporations and complex partnerships that are evading their taxes and collect from them what is owed. And third, we should address the growing risk of tax scams. 
and protect honest taxpayers from these scams and root out nefarious uh, actors that are perpetrating them. That is our agenda. Again, it should not be objectionable. It's very core to our mission. It, it should be seen as nonpartisan. It is nonpartisan and will benefit America, uh, especially people that need to reach the IRS because they're dealing with complex tax laws. We should be reachable. So part one, do we have the right agenda that Congress and the American people can get behind? I think we do. And then the second part is delivering on that agenda and saying, if you provide those funds and you don't claw them back, we will be able to be more accessible. We will help voters in your district or voters in your state get through to the IRS and resolve their issues and have a very positive experience with the IRS. And we've demonstrated, and can we demonstrate, that if you retain those funds, your voters, your constituents will have a positive experience when they engage the IRS. Can we demonstrate that we can identify, for example, millionaires and billionaires that owe back taxes that haven't paid? And then can we demonstrate that with this money, we can go get that money that is owed? And so far, we've made progress on that as well. And can we take steps working with stakeholders to protect taxpayers from scams? And we are increasingly outlining a set of steps that we believe are absolutely critical to help honest taxpayers, in particular vulnerable populations, from being exploited by tax scammers. And again, I think it's a very compelling case to say, with these funds, we're going to protect honest taxpayers from risks and economic threats. And these are the types of funds that should be kept with the IRS, not pulled back. You were saying how communicating the IT modernization and how that ultimately ties back to better service to taxpayers. Uh, you mentioned recently before uh, lawmakers the individual master file, the improvements being made there. I think the goal is April 2024 after the filing season, do some work there. Can you just shed a little bit more light on what ultimately the timeline is and how that will translate into better service to taxpayers? Yeah, I, I'm glad you asked the question. I mean, I start with the reason why the individual master file is so important, and that is the large underlying system at the IRS that essentially processes every individual tax return. So every individual tax return that comes in ends up in the individual master file, and the individual master file basically says, is a balance due or is a refund to be issued? Why is it so important that this is modernized? Because if we want to give taxpayers a fully digital experience, if we want them to experience the same type of thing when they go on their favorite online banking platform, they can get everything done. They can see what balance. They can see where their refund is. They can see if there's a flag on their account that they need to deal with, whatever it happens to be. And importantly, if they want to know if the person that just called claiming to be the IRS saying you owe money, go to your online account and you can see your status to know whether you're being scammed or not. All of that is possible if we have a modern individual master file that is feeding information safely into that web environment. On an old system that's cobalt-based with non-standard data that does not have that kind of readiness to move information safely and cleanly into a web environment, we'll never get to that online banking vision that we have. And so that's why it's so important to update the individual master file. Now, the good news is that a lot of work has gone into 
this over the years, and we are planning after the next filing season to turn on uh, the modern IMF. The legacy IMF will still exist just in case, but after this filing season, so from April to next filing season, we will run the modern IMF platform and make sure that it operates well, and then eventually we will close down the old IMF platform for good. And that is all happening starting this spring, so it's a very exciting time And uh, as we move into this next phase, taxpayers should start to see increasing functionality on that individual account and being able to get more and more stuff done with the IRS without ever picking up the phone or without ever walking into a walk-in center. We're excited about that. I know it's very recent, but the president's AI executive order, you mentioned it briefly. When you talked about hiring, you've talked about kind of the data and AI experts, you know, slicing and dicing the data, getting to smarter, more impactful audits. Just seeing this, you know, demand signal and this fast moving technology, what do you see the role of AI in the IRS in the the short term future? Well, I think I start with we have to be very judicious and thoughtful. We have to engage stakeholders to make sure that we are approaching AI and IRS operations in a way that balances good stewardship, right? We have to think about AI ethics. We have to think about are the things that we're doing uh, completely consistent with the Taxpayer Bill of Rights? And so it's for us, it's absolutely essential that if we're going to deploy AI in IRS operations, that we're looking at it from every angle to make sure that we're protecting taxpayer rights. And if we do that and we do it successfully, then we can deploy AI in a way that's going to benefit taxpayers. It's going to, if we deploy it successfully into the call center and we've started to, it's going to mean less wait times on the call center. It's going to mean more automated options where they can get their issue resolved in minutes or seconds, uh, depending on the issue. And as you alluded to in your question, it could also mean that our enforcement on wealthy filers is more sophisticated and more impactful. And it could mean that it would be more difficult for a a sophisticated taxpayer to evade their taxes because we're keeping pace by leveraging uh, technology effectively. But again, I start with, and I think this is a huge part of why the executive order was issued, that as a federal agency, we have a responsibility to deploy AI very thoughtfully, very cautiously, and make sure that we are taking the citizen's perspective into account as we deploy, and we're committed to doing that. All right. And just one more, if I may. You've made it a pretty big focus, shrinking that tax gap between what taxpayers owe and what the IRS collects every year. Bringing people on board is obviously a big piece of that. Training them up, I know it takes you know an order of years to get them really up to speed with some of those sophisticated high-end you know audits and things like that. Just in terms of the timeline of where you'd like the IRS to get to, you know, I know the, the previous IRS commissioner Reddig, uh, you know, he he said that you know the IRS is constantly getting outgunned by these really high-end uh, tax cheats. But you know, what, what what will it take for you to see an IRS that will that that can you know rise to the challenge and and you know ultimately go after those really high-end uh, individuals and businesses that aren't paying what they owe? There's two ways to think about it. First of all, we're going to go on a journey. And we're going to build a capacity year over year and strengthen both our human resources, the training that they have, the subject matter expertise. We're going to build muscle in terms of data and analytics. And as a result, over time, 
each year we're going to get better at knowing which cases to select for audit. And once we have the returns in front of us, and this is focused on the wealthy, sophisticated filers, uh, where the balance due is within those returns. And we're going to get better and better at that year over year by deploying those investments smartly. In the short term, we have to set more immediate priorities on our existing resource base where we can either redeploy people, use some of our early new hires, some of our early new lawyers that we've hired, some new technologies that we've had around certain sets of priorities. And so we've announced some of those priorities, but there's more to come. One of those priorities we announced is back taxes by millionaires and billionaires. And we created a high-risk list of 1,600 millionaires and billionaires that earn a million dollars a year and owe more than $250,000 in back taxes. And we are systematically going to get that money back for the American people. So that's establishing an early priority as we build a longer-term strategy. We've also announced priorities, for example, around you know a complex partnerships that, that are showing year-over-year balance sheet discrepancies in a way that points to potential tax evasion. So we have sent what we call compliance alerts out to these partnerships to say, hey, relook at uh, at this. Uh, maybe you want to you know, come forward and, and amend your taxes and pay what's due, or you should know that you're on our radar screen. And again, these are large, complex you know, partnerships were not ever. And when I'm talking about using Inflation Reduction Act funds to improve enforcement, we're never talking about middle and low income. We're not talking about mom and pops. The efforts that we're building muscle around is after the large taxpayers. And the reason for that is, is because it's those large taxpayers that can afford to hire the army of accountants and lawyers where when there is tax evasion, it's tougher to root out. And that's where the investment needs to go. We need to invest where things are tougher for us to ensure compliance. And that's where the efforts are focused. That's Danny Werfel, the IRS commissioner, speaking with Federal News Network's Jory Heckman. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Comstetter, Chief People Officer, at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you, great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect, so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people? And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected. 
and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences and that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Yeah, excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, and we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're gonna go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent, new thinking. Um, 
This is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, Makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor and I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency. And I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, And that leader then said, okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead, and I want to hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, And I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped. And I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title chief people officer and I think it's my dream job really to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency. So we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role 
with a intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in, would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going? Um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career. And that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, and I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank uh, you. Having known you now for seven or eight years yeah. um, and worked alongside you, 
Uh, your passion is infectious. You. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues. It's, uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.